We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to built environment professionals about the relationship between architects and builders and what it takes to make this fundamental collaboration successful. Our guest in this episode is Jason Bird, who is a registered architect and associate at Liquid Blue Architects in Queensland. Jason shares his experiences working closely with builders on large-scale projects with a focus on aquatic centres and pools, being able to communicate with builders in the office and on site, and the importance of having builders on site who are keen to go the extra mile to achieve the design intent in the built outcome. I'll now hand over to Myron Montero, who is an Imagine Committee member based in Queensland. Let's jump in. Welcome, Jason Bird, Associate Director at Liquid Blue, based here in Brisbane. Thank you for joining us to talk about this Hearing Architecture podcast topic, the relationship between architects and builders. Can you summarise your role at Liquid Blue and extrapolate on how frequently you interact with builders? or the type of projects that you work on? Yeah, sure. I'm Associate Director at Liquid Blue. I've been working here for about 13 years now. It's been a roller coaster of a journey doing lots of different sort of projects, different types of procurement methods through the years. So I've had experience with builders back from when we were doing a lot of multi-residential work, developers, developer builders, through to what we're mainly doing now, which is in the aquatic and recreation space. And it's a bit more of a larger commercial area and dealing with a bit of a different environment with the builders now. Yeah, it's, it's good fun. Yeah, that's great. And I think I'd like to also point out the multiple accolades for the projects that you've worked on and been recognised for, including the Australian Institute of Architects Regional Awards, state level awards, and even national commendations, just to name a few. Another major milestone for Liquid Blue is the 20 years in practice that's um, recently been notched up, recently achieved in December of last year in 2021. How has the practice changed over the years? How long have you worked there in total? And how has that shaped Liquid Blue's design philosophy that you apply to your work? Over the years, um, Yuri, the director, has managed to create a really strong culture around design. We do see ourselves as a design studio first and foremost. So there's, there's it's not a big office. There's not a lot of us. So we all get heavily involved in every aspect of delivery. So I think that's a really strong part of what we do. It makes the team pretty tight and it gives a lot of continuity to what we deliver. Yeah, wonderful. You mentioned the involvement and sector that you've been working on in very niche idea of aquatic centres and seemingly yeah, Liquid Blue has been able to leverage that on quite a numerous amount of projects. How did you get into that area? Yuri, he's the creative director of the business and he's really the one who has built it to what it is today. And from his experience with his father, his father was actually 
he created quite a lot of the ledger features in pools that you see across Australia today um, over the last 40 years. And he was out on site with him, visiting site with him as a, as a kid. So I think that sort of stuck with him a fair bit and sort of came around full circle to when he got into architecture. And I guess it's a natural fit for him, you know. Yeah, great. And has there been a trend in why there has been so much work in that area? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the Olympic pools that were built around the country were all around the 1950s. They're all getting to the end of their life and have been getting to the end of their life for quite a little while now. So, And these swimming pools are very important for Australia's culture. And, you know, when these pools start to reach the end of their life, it's very important for these communities to do something about it and they end up getting um, redeveloped or replaced one way or the other to keep that community pool there for everyone to enjoy. Yeah, and I imagine that if we swing into the idea of the topic of the relationship of architects and builders and we start thinking of construction of these aquatic centres, I imagine that knowing that it's a niche area of work, the builders might also have to have a niche set of skills to be able to deliver these. What are the procurement methods and construction contracts that you've encountered for these projects? Has there been a trend of similar popular processes or has it been largely varied? It is varied. Most of the centres we've done up until recently have been traditional procurement, traditional lump sum, with either the pool builder. So there's always a you know a main contractor or builder and then there's a specialist pool builder involved as well and whether or not they're engaged directly to the main builder or engaged as a separate entity it changes through the procurement process typically they're underneath the main the main contractor though but yeah there's always those two the two main builders on site during these projects yeah i'm wondering does that mean double the amount of admin on your side or double the amount of things and relationships to keep intact yeah i mean we've established some pretty good relationships with a few of the pool builders that we've worked with over the years so it makes it a lot easier. You know, we're, we're not obviously directly engaged with these guys. They're, they're engaged through the, the principles. So a lot of it really comes down to that sort of contractual relationship, um, how that's set up to start with. Have there been times where even if that contractual relationship is one step removed, that because of the frequency that you've done similar projects, that there's a pool builder that gets appointed that you've worked with prior? but the principal contractor is someone that is a new dynamic in that situation. And if so, um, how has that dynamic changed? And knowing that, yeah, the professional role of the architect, it shouldn't, but we all know, yeah, there are nuances to knowing people prior to a project as well. It doesn't really make an impact on us. It's very common to have a different builder it's a new builder on every job, right? It's a new team. Even if it's the same company, it's going to be a new team of people you haven't worked with. So it's all really just part of the process that you just have to engage with and make the best you can out of it, really. So depending on who is the pool builder on within within that arrangement, it doesn't really it doesn't really have a big impact. It comes down to the nuances between how the actual process is worked between the pool builder and the actual main main contractor on site. Those things are the intricacies of how it works on site just changes 
slightly between the different arrangements and the different contractors. So this is all great stuff. Delve a bit further into that because it speaks about the idea that every time a new project kicks off, whether the project is inception or um, when projects change at construction contracts starting, that essentially you're, um, you're establishing new relationships, should I say, trying to dissect the design that you've been working on a lot prior. Do you have to put in a lot of effort in creating a relationship with the builder? Yeah, so it's the, the process of the contractor trying to understand what you've put on paper. I mean, that's ongoing. Like that, that happens throughout the entire construction process. So there'll obviously be the, that initial line of queries for anything major that stands out to them. But then you just do what you can to fill in the blanks or help explain what the intent is if, if it's not explained adequately on the, on the documents. And you just work through that as required. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point because a lot of the relationship is set up not just from um, personal dealings as the project goes on, but a large portion is set up by yeah, that procurement method, that construction contract. You mentioned a lot about the lump sum traditional that you've been involved in. Um, can you expand on some of the projects that you've worked on where you've had a large portion, you've had that full architectural service to aid during construction? Uh, yeah, so during traditional lump sum. So I guess what we're getting to is talking about architects and builders and the relationships. When you're on site, a lot of what controls that relationship or sets it up is the procurement method. And with the traditional, you are essentially engaged as superintendent, typically. So you're administering the contract between the, the builder and the, the principal. And, and that's a good model. So if you're there the whole time so you can control or at least monitor and assist with the maintenance of the quality outcome, which is you know what everyone is, is taught about traditional lump sum contracts. It's you get, you get the quality outcome because you're involved more heavily throughout the entire process. I think what tends to impact negatively on any builder-architect relationship is if there's issues on the cost side, so if the, the thing's over budget, and if the contractor at any point starts hurting, then the entire process becomes difficult. And that's where we get problems in any arrangement of, of procurement. So the problems are a bit different depending on the procurement. So I guess if, if it's traditional lump sum in my experience, then if the builder is hurting, then um, the only way to really recover any of that is through variations in the contract. Um, so then there's constant probing at what was documented and you know what's what's going on where. So it becomes quite an adversarial position between all the parties. It becomes quite difficult in that respect for the architect-builder relationship. I guess that's a long-winded way of introducing that one, but I guess there's the other side of it. So that's, that's all contractual, right? So you walk out of the office from a site meeting on site with that particular contractor if money is becoming an issue and you go and talk to the guys on site and it's a different relationship. Okay, so you've got the relationship with the guys that are running the administration side of it and you've got the relationship with the guys on site on the tools. And we've always been, I think, 
fairly proactive with maintaining that that relationship on the ground with the guys, making sure we're there to help and you know when they've got questions we can help them out no matter what's going on in the background in the, in the contractual side of things. So you've got to try to maintain that um, that separation, if you will, is that they are they are two different elements to any building project. It's the contractual side and it's the actual getting the thing built. Yeah, wonderful. I really like that. It's touching upon that idea that, yeah, you have to be very aware and proactive about the situation at hand. And of course, um, the relationships are set up well. And whenever there is the case of being able to match the right contract to the right project, but obviously there's similar to any portion of the design, you can only do what you think is best at the time, but then changing situations can certainly affect that. And obviously, construction contracts also have some leeway in terms of, as you mentioned there briefly, variations or other means of being able to react to change. Have there been times where yeah, you've had to react to changing situations that either change the relationship with the builder or potentially where there were changing conditions and the fact that you were able to foster that working relationship meant that as rocky as the project and the decisions may have been, it was actually able to be quite enjoyable. Yeah, look, I think think what it comes down to is a mindset of being solution-focused. And if you have that mindset while you're on site on every project, it, it works out because you're not worried about anything else. You, you have to deal with things separately. So you're on site, the builder needs something to get to the next part of building the building the project. You know, they need a detail, they need a advice on a solution or some methodology or something. And if you're focused on getting it solved, then you address that first and foremost and then you obviously consider all of that in the context of the contract and everything else, but you do your absolute utmost to get the solution happening, to get a good outcome for the project. Yeah, that's great. And in terms of that, it um, speaks volumes about the collaboration that's required to get a project delivered and constructed. How, within dealing with the builder, does that affect the kind of the triangle diagram that we all um, hear about in in the talks and that affects projects, which is the quality, time, and cost. Yeah, quality, time, and cost. You can't have all three, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's it's always good to keep that in in your mind. Um, And, you know, when you're managing any architectural project, you've got to think about that through the life of it. Well, for, for starters, change costs money. So any change in the brief or, you know, variation to anything along the way, is, it's going to cost the principal money. So if they're prepared to pay for the change that they're instigating, then it's, it's relatively easy to integrate as long as it fits in with, you know, the builder's program and what's happening on site. But, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because, you know, there's, it's, you don't often think about the process you go through in that situation and you, you will rely on input from the contractor on, where they're at and what the best way forward is based on you know what you want to achieve with whatever that change is and take that feedback and then work around that to get the best outcome for whatever additional design is required to be input for it 
hopefully you end up with what you what you need to you know get get what the client wants yeah that's great and i might see if i can um focus on potentially like an example project like blackwater or gimpy aquatic recreation center or the like but i'm going to kind of try and ask got a two-pronged question for you where knowing that we're talking about the collaboration of the two parties and the two sets of knowledge the two-pronged question being how was the design enhanced because of the relationship between architect and builder and then on the other hand how is the construction enhanced because of that working relationship i guess starting with the construction side of it i think like maintaining that solution focused mindset really goes a long way to making sure that regardless of what's happening in the contract side of things you know when things get very commercial even if it's not getting very commercial just having that relationship where the the builder is happy to give you a call on your mobile and sort out a detail at whatever time of the day um, so you can get it done that sort of a relationship with the guy on site i think is critical yeah, it's, it speaks a lot for the outcome of the project at the end of the day. Because the guys on site are always really, really motivated to do a good quality job. Um, and they need your assistance typically along the way to make sure that they can do that the way you want it, the way your design intent has been documented. So that constant communication with the guys on site is, is critical to that. So that's, I mean, that's where the value is, just getting, you know, enhancing that relationship with the guys on site. You get the value in the construction quality at the end of the day i guess for the design side of it, it's it's there's two sides to that i guess there's when you're already in construction you're maintaining the design and the design intent and, and what you want for the project by having that you know that good relationship um as i as i just discussed so the the construction and the, and the design go hand in hand it's basically the same it's my ask comment but then there's uh you know the consideration of having them having the contractor early engagement during the design process which I think it, do, it does have some benefits with regards to, you know, discussing methodology and really getting a good understanding of how the contractor would build something and their preferred methods, and especially if they're the one that's going to be building it, um, being able to develop design, design around that is an, an advantage. Otherwise, like without that, um, you end up designing with the methodology in mind. So how you think, or at least the structure. The structure is a good example with methodology because there's always a, a methodology in mind with how a structure is designed. So that's where really where I guess the, the benefit is from a design perspective. The other benefit of obviously having them on early is the ensuring that the, the, the cost and the budget are, are more aligned. And that's typically why they do get uh, principles do get them involved early, I think. No, that one's good. Yeah, that's right. I, I do want to, I think, circle back to one where I think, yeah, you were on roller. I was really enjoying when you were mentioning about how the construction was enhanced. And I know um, Blackwater, for instance, was one that was a bit of a distance away. I'd be interested in um, you touching on, like, um, where exactly that is in relationship to your office and how you've travelled there because you made the point about the fact that um, usually yeah, those good working relationships, they're happy, the builders or people on site are happy to 
call you up and ask for clarification, ask to yeah, get a further understanding of the drawings because it was a really good point you mentioned where they're on site all the time, they're thinking about this, whereas you potentially, you've done the bulk of the work, your resources are petering off, you're not on the site as much obviously as they are. So yeah, I'd be curious to know um, yeah, a bit more about that where you, there are projects that are regional and how you have to travel to them and how you were still able to keep up that quality assessment and progress review. It's always important to get a good understanding of what's going on on site, keeping your finger on the pulse, so to speak. And I, one example is, uh, you know, on the Gimpy project, we were originally going up there once a fortnight. And obviously your, your frequency reflects what's happening on site so you know whilst they're doing all the civil works and everything you're probably not going to go up there as often um, but once it once it really revs up you want to be up there a bit more and we found that once a fortnight just wasn't really doing it for us or the client so we ended up going up there a full day you know once every week the start of the day was going into a site meeting we were superintendent on that job as well so you know you go into the site meeting and you go through all of the contractual items and progresses and where, where's everything up to, what's happening in the next few weeks, blah, blah, blah. You walk out of the site shed and you're basically in a, in a different world where you're just providing assistance to all the guys on site. Uh, you're walking around all the buildings and they're asking you any number of queries that you can help them out with and you're basically there doing that and most of the times you would be there for all day, well, not all day, but, you know, from when you get there to when you leave without a break, you know, you get there, you, you do the work, you're constantly helping them out and asking questions for the entire time and then you're done and you're off-site. It's a full day and that's just one and so that's just one day a week. So you can imagine on some jobs there would be easy requirement for someone to be there every day on-site, just helping and assisting on-site as required. But yeah, that was really helpful for all parties just to be there for one day a week and just to keep things moving. And outside of that, obviously, there were the phone calls and things that you were just stout of. Yeah, that's right. And I think sometimes, depending again on what's required from an architect on the construction side during that time, yeah, it can be very varied and yeah, quite involved especially if this is an example to show that, yeah, how much effort is required once the drawings and documentation packages are done, but, yeah, how much more effort there is to keep that quality and keep that um, construction, yeah, um, collaboration and knowledge free-flowing and actually make it onto the physical form. Um, for, uh, for Gimpy Aquatic Recreation Centre, um, can you give us an idea of yeah, the scale of that project, where it's located in uh, relative to Brisbane and yeah, what that journey actually was for you? It was a full day, but to actually get there was a journey in itself. Yeah, it's a two-hour drive from Brisbane uh, one way, so four hours on the road on that one day with the entire time in between sitting on site or being on site. I think it ended up being... Uh, construction costs of around 20 million. There was a new outdoor 50 meter pool, a splash pad, 
water play area for the kids, um, an indoor program pool and learn to swim pool, which was a 25 meter pool enclosed. And then you, we had a couple of large um, water slides up the back there as well. Um, and there was also, you know, amongst all of the um, administration office, back of house facilities, amenities, um, and there was a gym there as well. Yeah, I think there was on about a 1.2 hectare site, which was a really difficult site. I think it sloped about seven or eight metres from one corner to the other corner. And it also had an overland flow stormwater pipe running right through the centre of the site, dividing it in two, which is something we worked through and into the design as well. In terms of the client, and I know we're trying to mention or stay focused on the builder, but it is interesting as well knowing how that brief and that program came about. What was the process of um, yeah, knowing what was required on the site and then how did, when it got to that area that you were mainly focused on construction with the builder, how did that brief and quality outcome kind of be maintained in those later stages? I guess the process of the, the briefing and development of the design and everything was a very good process with the council. There was a lot of steering and um, decisions being made along the way to help really make decisions um, on in the technical nature and in the design nature. That really helped get us to a really good outcome. I guess once we were on site, come back to that relationship that you have with the guys walking around on site to, to get that happening. An example is, you know, getting to know the sub-trades as well. You know, we had a really substantial brick design on that building as the front facade, which I guess that was all part of, and, it, and a lot of the work on that came together with discussions with council and our approach on how to put a large-scale commercial building in the middle of a residential area, which is a, a problem we're often faced with with these facilities you're looking at putting a two-story indoor pool building across the road from residential so you've got to make that work and blend into that environment and this one of the main drivers here was the the use of brick as a material and scaling that um, back from the street giving the giving it a nice big forecourt so the largest the larger element of the project was set back from the street and Getting that, getting that brick wall built, you know, we had a number of A1 sheets setting out the bricks all along the wall, and the wall was like 40, 50 metres long. So talking to the brick contractor on site, the brick subby, and the questions he was asking and just helping him read the drawings the way we intended them to be read, you know, just that aspect of it, you know, you, you often do a drawing and you're like, yep, that does it, that communicates everything, and then you turn up on site and you realise, well, it doesn't. Um, so, you know, there's there's always interpretation involved and it's it's good to be able to sit there with a drawing with with the main bricky guy on site and talk through your intent and what you're really after with it as well and to, to get to the outcome. So it was a really good experience in that job. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And, yeah, it's a really good point, the fact that everyone involved in the project, they want to see a good outcome, they want to be invested in it and that's where it does tie in largely in understanding, well, where did the project ideas come from? How did that brief get formulated? And then you being able to communicate that 
down the line so that that investment continues right down to that brick subcontractor. If I can get you to expand, I know as you mentioned, you can speak for a while on it. It is very interesting and I think, yeah, it's one particular example out of numerous, but yeah, if you want to expand on it, how did you find that process of, you had the numerous detail that you had drawn up where potentially there would be other projects that this particular subcontractor may not have required as much um, input and it was largely left to them. How did you find that process in having to have a very large amount of control because of the outcome that you required from it and in dealing with that and being able to communicate exactly what you needed? Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to the the contractor's desire to get it right as well. They were very committed to getting it right. I mean, we were we were cutting multiple bricks on a 30-degree angle and laying them and setting them back 10 mils or 20 mils and then setting some out the same amount. So they wanted to get it right, which was great. And, you know, this is where doing like a prototype on site comes into play really and helps a lot. So... And the, the contractor, like the head contractor and the subby were all very motivated to get it right and get a good job. So, you know, they were happy to do a prototype on site. We could come out and, you know, have a look at it to see if it's what, you know, if they were hitting the mark on it and, you know, if there are any changes in the methodology that had to happen and you know, to, get, to get the thing where it needed to be. Um, so, yeah, the prototype aspect of it and um, everyone's willingness to get it right um, really helps. Yeah, that's, that's great because, yeah, that really delves into the notion of collaboration and leverages it to its full effect and knowing that, yes, they are experienced and have done um, different typologies before and the fact that, you know, by them being able to utilise that prototype, they know they're not going to be overly disappointed by doing a huge section of war and then realising that they've got it wrong or having to go back to the, yeah, back to square one on it. Yeah, that's part of the expertise. Yeah, yeah, no, and, no, and no one wants to turn up on site and say, that's wrong, rip it down, right? Like, you, right. You, yeah. you just want to avoid that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, have there been situations where, yeah, you've had to have that hard conversation and, yeah, need a push for it because, yeah, it is, a, it is something that has to be done right? Yeah. Yeah, look, it, it does happen where, um, and when you're when you're when you're a super on a job like when you're administering it, you you have to strike a balance as well. Like you can't just go there and rule with an iron fist. You know, it's it's not about that. It's about understanding the the difficulties that the contract is up against as well. But sometimes it's just it just has to be done again, and for for the outcome of the project to to maintain that. So yeah, it does happen, but you try to avoid it. And, you know, once you do go through it one or two times, you, you realise the importance of the prototype methodology as well as any other quality obligations you can, you can put on the process for the contractor as well. So you can do a lot of checks and balances before they get to that point in the project and make sure it's on the right track before it goes off track. Yeah, that's right. And that definitely comes back to that idea. Awareness, proactiveness and the like, I think maybe I can switch to something a bit more um, hypothetical or 
Merrick then, knowing that, yeah, that was great, that process at MP, um, that you had like this great relationship, great contractor that wanted to get it right and that even cared down to that subcontractor level. On the flip side, and this is probably where it goes to the more hypothetical and knowing that the work that you've been involved in is potentially even more specialist, the whole idea of pool construction, as you mentioned, sometimes had a different builder. Um, other kind of pre-qualification items where you've, that are very obvious when either when you're assessing tenders or looking at potential builders to recommend to prospective clients for a project, are there any signifiers or identifiers that show that a builder is not up to scratch for the project and a certain type that you wouldn't want to work with? Uh, yes. I mean, if we are involved in, sometimes we are involved in like a um, selection process and, you know, it's always based on a number of categories that they all have to, I mean, it's a tick box scenario, right? So um, based on experience, based on previous project size, you know, have they done a project worth so many millions of dollars before? If you're looking at a, they're putting forward a contractor that's, only done smaller jobs and you're doing a, a massive 50 meter Olympic size Vena pool, then they're not going to get that box ticked. So that's really what it comes down to at that aspect. It's kind of a very strict yes or no categorization of who's qualified for the job, just like, just like the head contractors. So it's pretty much what it comes down to. I guess talking about pool builders specifically, there's not a massive number of pool builders in the country, so there's there's a few that you find on a lot of the jobs that we do. So, yeah, I think there've been there've been plenty of thought-provoking ideas that you've touched on today. I think yeah, one that really resonated with me was that whole idea of when you talk about the trust and faith in the documentation needing to kind of be handed over to the builder and interpreted correctly. And that's a really good reason that the architect adds value in those construction stages where they can clarify and aid in yeah, getting what was on paper, which is still a design idea. It's never fully formed until it reaches the site. And I think, yeah, that was a great piece of talking about that value add. Is that something that yeah, you always, that you spruik when you approach clients or the rest or knowing that you have that working relationship with builder, the fact that you do as an architect add value in that construction stage? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, yeah, we, we make it reasonably evident to the clients. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's part of delivering their brief, isn't it? I mean, the brief development happens over the course of the documentation. Um, it's always evolving and you're putting all of the client's little requirements and you know functional requirements and expectations into the documents. And for some reason or another during construction, something might change and there goes like an entire idea and requirement that was supposed to be in the, in the, in the final outcome. And if you're not there monitoring that, and if, you know, if the client's got someone on board through construction that can monitor that, that's great. But it's usually 
to be honest, usually it's the architectural team that's the most consistent as far as um, maintaining one person's involvement and knowledge of the entire project from start to finish. Um, you'll find a lot of a lot of clients, especially with larger organisations, the the staff changes and there's different personnel doing different different things throughout the process. So having someone who's invested in the outcome of the project from the start to the finish, uh, I think the architects usually play a pretty good part in filling that role. Yeah, that's a wonderful summary of the process as a whole and the um, effect the architect brings to a project. So I think that's a wonderful point that we can end on there. So Jason Baird, thank you very much for your time today and thanks for having having you on the Hearing Architecture podcast. Um, hopefully it's been <laughs> rewarding experience for you to reflect on everything that we've spoken about so far, but I've certainly learned a lot today. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure, mate. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, architect Jason Bird from Liquid Blue Architects. We're thankful for your time and we can't wait to see the great projects you design and get built in the future. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Myron Montero, Genevieve Vella, Sam McQueenie, Rohana Fullerton and Bradio O'Toole. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.